Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, and as always, thank you for joining me. I truly appreciate it. Before we delve in today's, into today's topic, I want to send out a big happy, happy, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there and all the people who fit into a different category of moms, stepmoms, quasi-moms, de facto moms, Whatever the case may be, we appreciate everything you do. And again, have a wonderful, happy Mother's Day. Last week, we concluded our deep dive into some of the major older Mexican cartels. And at the end of last week's episode, I said we were going to get back into the Camarena case, at least for a few weeks. And over the next two weeks, we are going to look at the Camarena case, particularly through the lens of Narcos Mexico. We're going to go into all of this in in detail. But in short, there are certain things that a lot of people believe to be true because they saw them on Narcos Mexico. Whether they should believe them to be true, totally beside the point. So we're going to look both at Narcos Mexico and how it came about. And at some of the things portrayed there that people believe to be true. And we're going to strip away the dramatization and try to determine which ones are true, which ones are false, what is dramatic license, What should we believe and accept and acknowledge as the truth, right? Because as we've talked about over and over and over, there's so much out there about this case that simply isn't true, that is complete conjecture, or that is inconsistent with a lot of evidence, And so the more we talk about the case, and every time I think about the case, I think about some of these open questions, and and we've talked about them, and I want to find, if not the truth, a truth, or at a minimum, dispel some of the inaccuracies that are out there. The only way to do that is, as I say, to take what's drama and acknowledge a dramatic license, but then look at and make determinations about factual accuracy, things that we can then use going forward. So I want to start off by talking about Narcos Mexico itself, and then I want to compare it to two other shows And then we'll go into some of this in in more detail. For those of you who don't know, and I can't imagine there's many of you listening that aren't familiar with Narcos Mexico. But Narcos Mexico was a show that premiered on Netflix in November 16, 2018. It deals with the Mexican drug trafficking buildup in the 80s. It was created and produced by three gentlemen, Chris Brancato, Carlo Bernard, and Doug Miro. And 
I note that none of these people had documentary backgrounds. All of them had been active screenwriters, worked in movies and television. Mr. Brancato, in particular, had written and worked on some uh, some crime shows, Law and Order um, SVU, Law and Order Criminal Intent, Hannibal. I think he may even have, for a time, been the showrunner on uh, Criminal Intent. So that's their background. When I say they don't have documentary backgrounds, that's just a factual statement. Not a good, bad, no normative analysis, just a note that that's not their point of view. Interestingly enough, Narcos Mexico initially was just going to be the fourth season of the series Narcos. And Narcos, of course, dealt with Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel, the Cali cartel, the drug trade in Colombia. But apparently in making that fourth season, the that season morphed into or developed into its own series. So it premiered again on November 16, 2018. Pretty well received. Second season premiered on February 13, 2020. And then on October 28, 2020, Netflix renewed the series for a third season, but in doing so said... A, it was going to be the final season, and B, Diego Luna, who had really been the star of the show, star of the show, in his role uh, as Felix Gardo, he wasn't going to be coming back. Okay? So, third and final season premiered on November fifth, twenty twenty one. General thoughts, just as a viewer, it's well done. A well-produced, well-written. Generally speaking, I think it's well-acted. Um, you know, there are some over-the-top characters. There are certain things that we'll talk about later. But overall, a very well-done production. Um, I love the authenticity of most of it, or a lot of it, being done in Spanish. Requires me to actually watch, you know, I can't just have it on in the background because I'm not fluent in Spanish, but that's also a good thing. It just also means that I have to, I have to focus, I have to pay attention, but I love that part. As a viewer, the only thing that I really didn't like is I don't like the narration and voiceover, which I almost never like, but in particular here, I just didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't feel like it was necessary, but that's just me. Overall, well done production. So I want to talk about a couple of key differences between Narcos Mexico and Narcos. The thing about Narcos is Narcos followed the investigation of two DE agents in particular. Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, and they were the real-life DEA agents, you know, who were involved in the investigations in Colombia, the investigations into narcos. So when they agreed to work with the creators and writers of narcos, they had a wealth of knowledge that was different than 
a lot of documentaries or a lot of shows, you know, they were there. They heard things directly, not secondhand, etc. Agent Murphy has said that um, when they were approached, the only stipulation they had is whoever we do this with cannot in any way glorify Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. Um, Agents Murphy and Pena uh, were quoted in a couple of different publications. I did a bunch of reading about them last couple of days. They're very interesting people. But they said, look, Narcos is a dramatization, so it's about 50-50 when it comes to fact and fiction. But they stick to the true chronology of events. Agent Pena said, we told them how it actually happened. There's some artistic licenses, but the timeline is accurate. Um, you know, these, as I say, these guys were directly involved. There's an article where Pena tells a story about unwittingly working with a death squad leader in an effort to locate Escobar in like 1993. One of the things they talked about just as an aside in one of these articles is they said this popular belief that Escobar met with El Chapo in Colombia. They said it didn't happen. Um, one of the two, um, I can't remember exactly which one it is. Oh, uh, no, it's Agent Pena. I'm sorry. Agent Pena says, look, Pablo's contacts in the eighties, we had great evidence. We had fax intercepts. We know there were people like Amado Correa Fuentes. He says, but Pablo never met with Chapo. All right. So how is that different or to be distinguished from Narcos Mexico. We know that some DE agents worked with the Narcos Mexico creators, writers, etc. We've seen the pictures of Jaime Kirkendall at the premiere. I've spoken with Mr. Kirkendall about his work with them. I know that in seasons two and three, there were other DE agents who worked to one degree or another with the writers and creators of Narcos Mexico, if they have any issues with how much of what they said was used or not used or how it was used, that's up to them. But the one thing we know, and we'll talk about this in in just a minute, but we know that there are gaps in the knowledge base of what happened around the events of Narcos Mexico that didn't exist in Narcos, right? The the two agents, Agents Murphy and Pena in Narcos, were knee-deep in Escobar and the Medellin cartel. They heard conversations. We have almost none of that, at least on, on the non-DEA side, for Narcos Mexico. So that means, by definition, there's got to be more dramatic license given, right? Now... I want to compare and contrast Narcos Mexico for a moment to The Last Narc. The Last Narc calls itself a docu-series. It purports to be a documentary, which means that by definition, it purports to be true. Keep in mind, too, that Tiller Russell, the documentary's director, 
has said in several different forums that he researched Camarena's murder for 14 years. Then he shot and edited The Last Narc for two years. He had Hector Boreas, who at one time was the head of Operation Landa. He had Rene Lopez Romero, who said he was involved in the kidnapping of Camarena. By definition, anything that's presented in The Last Narc has to be true, unless you're setting up a devil's advocate situation, which he never does, right? There's never a contrary point of view. Never. So when things are wrong in The Last Narc, which they are, and as you know, if you've listened to me for a while, I've had this conversation directly with Hector Boreas. I've had it with another producer on The Last Narc. So it's not just me hiding behind a microphone. But when things are wrong in The Last Narc, it's unforgivable. Unforgivable. That's not the case with Narcos Mexico. Narcos Mexico starts off saying it's based on true events, but that it's a drama. Okay. Now, again, I'm going to talk to you about some specific things in the, uh, this week and next week where I have some disagreements with Narcos Mexico. That's okay. That's okay. I just think the standard you hold them to has to be different. One thing I find interesting is in several publications, Hector has come out and said he doesn't respect the Narcos Mexico people at all because they didn't tell his story that the CIA was responsible for Agent Camarena's abduction and murder. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I just I, I I just have to laugh at that for a second. Um, all right, I'm going to talk about some spe- specific topics for a few minutes, and then we're going to break for today, and we're going to come back next week and talk about more. We're going to do this in two steps for two particular reasons. One is I just think it ends up being a whole lot of information, um, and two, probably most importantly, it is Mother's Day, and I'm going to help my daughter do something nice for her mother, so... We're going to keep today's episode a little bit shorter and talk about three particular events portrayed in Narcos Mexico that I think are important to discuss. Not necessarily in order of priority, but we want to talk about this idea of the Guadalajara cartel. I know I've talked about this many, many times. But prior to the abduction of Agent Camarena on February 5th, 1985, no one, no one, no one, no one called it the Guadalajara cartel, okay? Didn't happen like that at all, okay? So, and I think I just said... I think I just said um, a factual error that's really going to bother me. It's really going to bother me. Um, I think I just said February 5th, 1985, and it's February 7th, 1985. So anybody who's getting ready to scream at me, 
That was just a synaptic misfire. I apologize. Okay. But up until the time of Camarena's abduction, there was nothing called the Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel. The DEA never referred to it that way. The media never referred to it that way. There was absolutely no evidence that they referred to it that way themselves. Okay. None. Zilch. Nada. There's also this perception that the Guadalajara cartel, as it became referred to, that they were the only drug traffickers in town, in Guadalajara, in the area. And that is absolutely wrong, too. There were lots of other dealers. Remember when we had Jaime Kirkendall on and he was talking about the immediate aftermath of figuring out that Agent Cameron was missing. And I said, did you immediately then think that it was, you know, Rafa or Felix Garo? And he says, well, they were suspects, but there were a lot of traffickers out there. Could have been a whole lot of them. That, I think, gets lost in the focus on these three guys. Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, Ernesto Fonseca Correa, and Rafael Cairo Quintero. Okay? I understand from a dramatic standpoint, again, why you focus on those. Um, what's interesting, though, is on a factual basis, it's hard to really know exactly what the relationship between these three figures was. Okay? What do we know didn't happen. We know it wasn't, you know, kind of like a corporation where they got together and they held meetings and they took notes and they had minutes. It it, it wasn't like that at all. They'd all kind of come from the same area. They'd worked for some of the same people. They'd moved to Guadalajara around the same time. They undoubtedly socialized in a similar group because of that similar background. But the idea that they were together all the time and worked really closely together may not actually be the case and I think is highly unlikely to be the case. Keep in mind, especially if you look at Felix Gallardo and Carl Quintero, they were on entirely different sides of the business, right? Rafa was focused on the big marijuana plantations, Chihuahua and other places. Felix Gallardo, in most part, was focused on being that trafficking intermediary between Colombia and the United States. Right? He worked with, probably... Juan Mata Ballesteros, Juan Ramon Mata Ballesteros from Honduras, who put the two together. The suppliers in Colombia needing new routes because what they'd been doing going through Florida and the Caribbean was being shut down. And Felix Gallardo saying, I can do this for you. And I can... Um, do it in a way that's highly profitable. We've already got the routes. And then he cr- came up with, you know, um, probably some um, some new 
agreements, some new ways of giving up the money and the risk became highly profitable for him and those that worked with him. But again, totally separate. And so the idea that they got together and talked all the time about what was going on, really don't know. There's very, very little evidence to support that. Other than allegations that they were at parties together, which again, if you come from the same hometown, you know, I live in Denver. I used to um, play tennis with a guy who was Greek. His family was directly from Greek. And, you know, when there's a baptism of a Greek child in Denver, hundreds and hundreds of people show up. And that's the same way with lots of communities in lots of, of cities. So the fact that they may have partied together doesn't really mean much. The other thing I want to note is Narcos Mexico, and if you go all the way back to drug wars, remember the one that um, was produced by Mann that um, had, had come from Elaine Shannon's great, great book, Desperados. But there's this idea that's presented that Rafa was famous and notorious and you know, that he drove through the streets of Guadalajara shooting guns and everybody knew who he was and stuff. And after he and Sarah Cosio got together, whether it was kidnapping or love affair or something in between, you know, that he was well-known. Remember, remember, when Agent Camarena was abducted, when the DEA agents were at the airport where he flew out of Guadalajara, the agents themselves did not have a picture of Rafael Caro Quintero. We know that for a fact. So I ask you, how famous and notorious was he really? I've also told you in the past, and you know what? Next week, I'll come back to this. I'll read from the DEA-6. There were some informants in late 1984, early 1985, talking about um, who was growing marijuana where, kind of who the new players were. And they'll go through and talk a lot about um, different drug dealers. And then it's kind of like, oh, yeah, and then there's Rafael Caro Quintero. He's going to be big, too. He's doing something big in Chihuahua. Certainly wasn't he's the only one. Certainly wasn't he's the biggest and you need to know about him first. I don't want to say he was an afterthought, but he certainly was a secondary thought. Remember, too, going back to the relationship between Felix Gardo and Rafa, I've shown you this before as well. DEA put together a chart, a detailed chart, um, this is, you know, after the kidnapping, but a detailed chart of the Felix Garda organization. You know who's not mentioned? Rafael Caro Quintero. Okay. So, dramatic license, I understand. But the perception that Guadalajara was dominated by this triumvirate, you know, this trio of big bad cartel leaders that everybody knew everybody respected carl quintero 
Ernesto Fonseca, Felix Gallardo. And then everybody knew who they were. Everybody knew who Raffle was because he had an affair with Sarah Cosio and he, you know, was wild and crazy. That's just not how it worked. And I think our understanding, or better said, our ability to start to understand the breadcrumbs of facts that we have surrounding the kidnapping itself and the immediate aftermath are better analyzed if the facts about the cartel or the traffickers in Guadalajara, if we take away that dramatic license, if we don't think Rafa is so famous and notorious, if we don't think Felix Gallardo and Rafa and Fonseca had like, you know, regular meetings and things. And again, just, I'm playing devil's advocate in the back of my head. I can hear somebody saying, ah, they had to have gotten together. I'm not saying they didn't talk. I'm not saying they didn't get together. But this close relationship may or may not be the case. And again, if it's not the case, that can explain some facts or um, anomalies in the facts that we know about the kidnapping and the immediate aftermath. Okay. Second area I want to talk about today is Rancho Buffalo. And this is going to be short. We could make this really, really long if we wanted to. We could drag this out. The bottom line is this. Kiki Camarena was a very, very good agent who had a lot of involvement and a lot of success in finding and turning over to the Mexican authorities, traffickers, and marijuana fields, marijuana plantations, all of that. But Kiki Camarena had almost nothing, almost nothing to do with Rancho Buffalo. And he certainly, absolutely did not go undercover at Rancho Buffalo. And he absolutely, positively did not almost run into Rafael Caro Quintero at Rancho Buffalo. Dramatic license. Fine. Again, I'm not arguing with the ability of these guys to say, based on true events, but it's a drama. Yep. Rancho Buffalo was there. It was huge. It was operated by Caro Quintero, and it was raided. But the dramatic license is Kiki Camarena had nothing to do with it. And he was not undercover at Rancho Buffalo. That does not mean, as we've talked about before, that fact does not mean that Rancho Buffalo could not have been a motive for his kidnapping. Right? If Rafa thought he was behind it, or Rafa thought the DEA in Guadalajara was behind it, 
that could be a motive, whether it was true or not. And remember, too, as I said, in no, nothing can take away from what Kiki Camarena did in Mexico and in other places as an agent for the DEA. But he was not the only agent in Guadalajara while he was there. And Guadalajara wasn't the only DEA agency or, you know, or office in Mexico at the time. Right? There were other operations going on. Operation Padrino. There were other things. Other agents looking at different things. It wasn't all Tiki Camarena or Guadalajara. Okay. The very last thing I want to talk about today is the actual kidnapping itself. And this is going to be part one. Then we'll talk about part two of the kidnapping next week. I have in front of me a chart or a series of charts that goes through every DEA-6, every witness statement, every piece of testimony, and every statement in the last NARC relating to the actual kidnapping. And we've talked about a lot of this in the past. It's 16 pages, legal pad or legal sheets, landscape orientation, 16 pages long. There are times when alleged witnesses go into great detail, times when they have very little detail. The one thing you notice immediately, and we won't even talk about the timeline, but one thing you notice immediately is they completely and totally contradict themselves. I mean, it's just crazy. They, you know, who was in the front seat, who was in the back, all kinds of stuff. But there are certain things that I find interesting from even the very beginning portrayal of the kidnapping of Agent Camarena. In the show, Narcos Mexico, the actual abduction where he's forced into the car is portrayed in a almost violent sort of way. Okay, not completely, but I mean, it's, it's, there's a struggle uh, to some extent. Um, and as we've talked about, some of the witnesses have said, gun was drawn probably by Al Sammy says, Hey, you got to come with us. Agent Camarena at that point, more than likely, basically went along and, may have been helped into the car, but this idea that it was a huge struggle may or may not really have been the case. The other thing is, he's it's portrayed that there's a hood put over his head, right? Right at the beginning. And there is absolutely no witness statement that says that. None. Nowhere. Now, I'll say, some say that they put a coat over his head once he got into the car. 
Others say they didn't actually blindfold him in any way until they got to Lope de Vega, at which time his head and his eyes were wrapped with gauze. But this idea that there was this big hood put over his head that then was taken off when he was in the chair in Lope de Vega, it's dramatic. It's absolutely dramatic, but it's not true. And I want to make, again, I'm going to say this one more time, and I'll probably repeat myself a few more times next week with this. I'm not criticizing. You know, Rancho Buffalo, that's a, it was a great scene in the marijuana fields, Carl Quintero and everything else. It was done well, pretty dramatic. That's a big step from the facts. But again, you know, I'm not not really being critical. The fact that there was a hood placed over his head, that there was a bit of a struggle getting into the car. The fact that the guys were all driving in three-piece suits and ties, um, which I'm not sure was actually the case at all. Um, you know, that's dramatic license. I'm not criticizing but it's in, these little facts are important, and I point them out because when we look at the open questions regarding the case, one of them in particular is the exact events around the kidnapping itself. And that's important for a whole myriad of reasons that we've talked about before and we don't need to go into now. So it's important that people know what did happen. It's important that people know that Agent Camarena got to his truck, that his truck was found the next day unlocked. That's a key fact that's really important to know. It's important to understand whether or not a hood was put over his head. Why? Because then you can evaluate what witnesses say, both now and in the past. I promise you, the next time Rene Lopez Romero has an occasion to talk about the kidnapping, he's going to say something different than he said before. It happens all the time with him in particular. So knowing these little details really is important. It does not mean the showrunners, the creators, the writers didn't do their job. It just means we as audience members need to pay attention. And if we care about the truth, then we separate drama from truth. The truth of the matter is he wasn't covered up with a hood out on the street in particular. He may not have had anything on until he got to Lope de Vega. So many times the little facts are the important ones when it comes to assessing credibility and truth. All right. As I told you, we're going to do this in two weeks. A lot more to talk about with respect to Narcos Mexico. I'm going to watch more this week, and we will talk about that then. Um, one more plug for the the uh, YouTube channel. We put some interesting things on there. 
Um, I'm really proud of it. I like it. Uh, I've got an editor who is a genius who does things I think are really wonderful um, and does them quickly. Check it out if you would. Um, I think you might like it. And with that, I'm going to say happy Mother's Day again. This has been Cartels, Conspiracies, and Cam Reina, and we'll talk to you next week.